Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It's Saturday morning. A little self-brain surgery Saturday here on 28 January. It's 20 degrees outside in Nebraska. It's cold and hope that you are safe and warm wherever you are. Hope you had a good week. It was a good week around here. Um, I just have been spending some time reading this morning and kind of working myself down a rabbit hole. And I realized, hey, it's almost six o'clock. This podcast is not going to record itself. And so I need to talk to my friend here and I just have a a short message for you. Not not a real new operation or anything for self-brain surgery Saturday here, but just I want to remind you of one of the central tenets of my new book, Hope is the First Dose. And one of the things that we've talked about a million times about this phrase that I, that I use, hope is a verb, okay? You remember the, the underlying assumption that we have is that hopelessness is far deadlier than brain cancer. Hopelessness is the, the deadliest thing known to man because if you lose hope, you can't take that step towards possibility, okay? So if the circumstances of your life have brought you these massive things, if there's hard things happening around you and you're just tired of being so tired and you wonder why you can't seem to find a way out or if you have defined your life by only being able to be happy if your circumstances are good, then I want to remind you that circumstances if, if, if circumstances define your emotional state, then you really won't ever be happy because the moving target will always happen to you that you finally get the thing that you thought would make you happy and then something else happens that's not perfect and that will make you unhappy too. So circumstances can't be the judge. Your success or failure can't be the, the thing that defines whether or not you're happy, right? And why does it matter that we're happy? Because Jesus came here, he said, to give us an abundant life. He came here in this hard world, John sixteen thirty three, and he came here so that even though the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy the SKD, that abundance, he came here so that you might have life and have it abundantly, John ten ten. Abundance is greater than the steal, kill, and destroy of the thief, right? From a neuroscience standpoint, your brain is hardwired for negativity, and you know that's true because you have a negative voice inside your head that reminds you of ways that you failed in the past, reminds you of things that have hurt you in the past, brings up old failures and old and, and the idea that the future can't be any better because you're such a loser, or why do you always have to do this, or why do people always overlook you, or all those things, and I'm not trying to you know read your diary i'm just telling you that all humans have this negative internal voice so what's the deal well today i just want to remind you of this idea that hope is a verb and i want to give you the new idea that that popped into my head yesterday that hope happens in an instant if we allow it to i've been studying this bible concept of strongholds a lot we we talked about it in our prayer time today's 21 days uh, the day 21 of our 21 days of prayer and fasting by the way Uh, and if you're so inclined if you want to get on at 9 a.m central time churchofthehighlands.com you can watch that last prayer service the last hour of the 21 days and it's a powerful it'll it'll change your worldview on what prayer is like so if you listen to this before uh, 9 a.m central time today um, you can watch it live with us it'll be streamed again all day until tomorrow so any if you hear this on 28 january go jump on church of the highlands.com and click on 21 days of prayer and watch that prayer service that'll blow your mind and it'll give you a, just a new look at what real corporate prayer can do for you and so it's powerful but the idea that hope is a verb that hope can happen in an instant i want to give you a little bit about what i call warren's gap theory and a, just a little nudge about strongholds that we're going to talk about again later in a full-length episode that i'm working on for you and what biblical strongholds really mean. 
And it's all about the battlefield of your mind because I'm always telling you that you can't change your life until you change your mind. But Lisa constantly reminds us that good news is that we can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it, and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is, you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done. If you like the show, please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Okay, so excited to talk about this right now. Uh, back in 2013, okay, that was a bad year for us. It was the year that we lost our son, Mitch. August 20th, 2013, worst day of my life. I'm sure Lisa and the rest of our family would say if, if, if they, if we polled them, that was the worst day of their lives. So we're coming up on this is the 10th year that we lost Mitch, but that fall, I just want to confess to you that it, it felt like Everything was life or death after that. Like every every little thing that would happen, like Kalen would be five minutes late getting home from school, and we were just certain that something devastating would happen, and we were just completely wiped out. We would be, you know, worried about everything that might be wrong when she was thirty seconds late getting home, right? And and we started watching college football again. Like we on Saturdays, we would just need to turn our brain off, and we fortunately had a healthy. Um, escape mechanism it didn't turn to alcohol or, or drugs or something else to turn our brains off and we were dealing with all that grief we we had each other and we had the lord we had our family and we had college football and auburn had a pretty good team that year and we lived in auburn and we didn't go to any games we gave away our tickets and sold them so in some cases um we had good season tickets it was a lot of fun back in those days but we had really really good seats and but we just didn't have the energy to be in public so so we were in San Antonio, we had, of course, our, our granddaughter Scarlett was born on the day that we buried Mitch. Our first grandchild was born in San Antonio. So we were there quite a bit trying to get to know her and, and huddle up with Katie and our, our daughter Katie and her husband Nate because um, they were in, dealing with the dual grief and gratitude thing of having a new daughter, their first child, and losing their brother Mitch at the same time. It was just a devastating, difficult time for us. And so... College football turned out Auburn had a pretty good year and they were playing well. And every Saturday we had something to look forward to to kind of turn our brains off and, and just have a few hours where we didn't have to focus on all the pain and loss and stress. And we just watched the football game. And so the Georgia game came along and Auburn, Auburn and Georgia were both playing really well. And they always compete for SEC championships. And at least in those days they did. And so in the Georgia game, if you go to YouTube and type in the prayer at Jordan Hare, the the stadium at Auburn is called Jordan Hare. The uh, Shug Jordan was the guy, an old 
old time guy, famous Auburn uh, coach, and they named the field after him, named the stadium after him, and it's not J, it's J O R D A N like Jordan, but it's pronounced Jordan. So if you hear somebody say Shug or Shug Jordan, then you know they're not really from Auburn because his name was Shug Jordan. And then the stadium is named after Shug Jordan and Cliff Hare, who H A R E. So the prayer at Jordan Hare. If you, you type in YouTube, the prayer at Jordan Hare, you can watch this play I'm about to describe. Cliff Hare was the dean of the College of Chemistry and, and was a member of the very first football team in Auburn, and ended up being the president of the Southern Conference, which was a predecessor to the Southeast Conference, which is of course the greatest conference in college football. No bias there, just my opinion. Um, anyway. So, so we were, um, go watch the prayer at Jordan here. Great, great play at the end of the Jordan, at the end of the Georgia Auburn game that year in 2013. Auburn's behind. There's almost no time left on the clock. And the quarterback, Nick Marshall, throws a Hail Mary pass that is short, like many of his passes were in those days. And it gets tipped by two Georgia defenders who should have just batted the ball away. But when they tip it, it goes forward, and Ricardo Lewis, the receiver, it just lands in his hands, and he looks in front of him, and the field is empty, and he ends up scoring a touchdown that wins the game. So it's fourth and long. Time's almost out. Game is over by all reasonable expectations, and this ball goes up that's not a, a good pass and gets tipped and lands right in the guy's hands. He makes a juggling catch and scores the touchdown. We're jumping up and down and screaming, Lisa and I. I can see it like it happened yesterday. We're standing at the end of our bed in our bedroom. These two bereaved parents who, you know, lost a child two months ago in this football game feels like it means the world. Of course it doesn't, but it feels like that in the moment. And they win this game and we're hugging and jumping up and down. It's the first time we've expressed anything that looked like joy in two months and then one week later or not a week but a little while later a few a few days later we're in auburn at thanksgiving and the game that's now known as the miracle of jordan hare happens which is also known as the kick six and if you could go to youtube and type in auburn kick six you'll see this play that i'm about to describe so we're at thanksgiving in san antonio visiting our family and we're at lisa's sister jessica and her husband ronnie's house and we're going to watch the iron bowl which is the annual clash between alabama the, the eternal juggernaut of college football and auburn the perennial underdog um, and we're watching the game and it comes down to one second left on the clock and and Alabama is going to kick a field goal that's going to win the game for them. Sorry, I had to take a sip of coffee there. So Alabama's got the ball. They're going to kick a field goal that's going to win this football game for them. And Auburn's coach, Gus Malzahn, makes a decision that probably made him 10 or $12 million. Um, he makes a decision to send Chris Davis, who was a cornerback, fast but a little undersized, send him back to the end zone. Because there's a rule in college football that if a, if a field goal is short and it's fielded by a player, so in other words, if a player catches the ball, it doesn't go through the goals, then you can return that. It's a live ball, and if you run it all the way back, it's a touchdown. So it counts. So And it almost never happens. It happens a few times you know, it has happened a few times in the NFL and college football history where somebody fielded a field goal and ran it back for a touchdown. It has happened before, but but it's almost unheard of, right? So so Gus Malzahn sends Chris Davis back, and I remember Rod Bramblett, who passed away a few years ago in a tragic car accident. He and his wife died, hit by a driver, a drunk driver. 
just horrible thing. Rod Bramlett was the color commentator for Auburn for years and years and years, and just an iconic voice. And you'll hear his voice on those two YouTube videos if you watch them. So, so Rod Bramlett mentions, oh, he's Chris Davis is back. He could feel this if it comes up short. He just kind of mentioned it because he knows the rules, right? So we're standing there with bated breath, waiting for this field goal that's going to go in because Alabama always finds a way to win. And the ball is kicked, and it's clearly now in the air, and it's going to miss. It's going to miss wide right. And Chris Davis catches the ball. And I remember thinking, oh, he caught the ball, great. He's going to get tackled on the 10. The game's going to be over. So I remember thinking that as it's playing out in real time. And here's where I want to pause and bring this back to while we're talking about football and while we're on the podcast talking about an Auburn game that happened 10 years ago. Here's why. Because Chris Davis did something here that teaches us all this lesson that I want to remind you of today, that hope is a verb. Okay, Chris Davis looked in front of him and he saw 11 Alabama football players crashing toward him. Right. He's got the ball and he sees 11 football players crashing toward him and he's got one hundred and nine yards to the goal line because he's deep in his own end zone here. And he could do one of two things with one of three things. Really, he could just not catch the ball and let it go because it's stupid and it's not possible for anything to matter. So why would he bother catching the football? Right. Or he could catch it and just give up and let them tackle him, right? Or he could try to score. So in a nanosecond here, he's got a decision to make. He's got the ball coming towards him, the Alabama team crashing down, his own players out there blocking 109 yards of field in front of him, and he has to make a decision. And that decision I would submit to you, I don't know Chris Davis, I've never interacted with him in my life, but I would submit to you that the decision that he made was to look for reasons to have hope. As I would tell you, in, in physics, we know that most of the universe is empty space, right? So if you look out in front of you, all the objects that you see, there's a lot more empty space than there is occupied space. And so he could have done some quantum physics equations in his head, and he could have said, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a real probability. There's a path for me to wind my way through here and not be touched by another human, and I can score this goal. I can score this touchdown. I'm, I'm assuming he probably didn't actually do all that math and do all the quantum physics equations and decide that there was a mathematical probability that he could wind his way through there. I'm assuming he didn't do that. I'm assuming instead of looking for data and trying to build a case for why he should try, I'm assuming he just took hope. And the reason he was able to take hope comes down to what I teach in my new book, Hope is the First Dose. And what I've talked about here when I say hope is a verb is that hope is actually an action word. It does not happen by accident. And the contrast to hope is hopelessness, which is paralyzing and devastating and far more dangerous and damaging to humans than any type of cancer ever could be. Hopelessness is the deadliest thing known to man, as we talked about in my book. I've seen the interview. But hope is a verb. It's an action word. And you have to decide you're going to engage it. And when you decide to engage it, there's two component parts that I've been able to discover from my exposure to people in devastating circumstances, including my own and my study of the Bible over a long period of time. And in my writing of now three books that really relate around hope and hopelessness, hope happens when you engage two component parts and they are memory and movement. Okay. Memory and movement combine together to create the energy required to flex the muscle to produce hope, which then opens up the possibility that something other than failure or death or loss or pain or whatever could happen to you. 
If you can find a way to engage memory and movement, you'll find a path to hope. Now, before we go on, let's go back to the Old Testament to a character that you know and love called Abraham. Abraham, of course, was the father of the nation of Israel, and, and we, we look at him as a hero of faith and, uh, you know, just a, just a man who was called a friend of God, right? So Abraham was an old man, and he and his wife Sarah had not had any children, which was a great source of shame in that day and age and culture. If you didn't have children, there was something the curse of God upon you. But God promised Abraham when he was almost 90 years old, he was, he was an old man, he said, you're going to have a nation of descendants. They're going to be as numerous as the stars on the seashore. They're going to be precious to me. The Savior of the world is going to come through them. And Abraham had no objective reason to believe God. He I mean, biologically, he was an old man. You know, historically, he had never been able to father a child with Sarah, his wife. There was no reason to think that at this age that either of them ought to. I'm sure that she was postmenopausal. I mean, I'm certain it was mechanically impossible for her to have a child at almost 100 years old, right? I mean, biologically, it just doesn't happen. So Abraham didn't have any any objective earthly reason to have hope. But what Abraham did is interesting. It's described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4.18 when he Paul talks about what Abraham did. And here's this curious verse, and this changed my life when I discovered this. Okay, friend? When I was grappling with the ideas behind the book that turned out to be, um, I've seen the end of you, and I was studying how people related to brain cancer and fatal diagnoses and all of that. And then while I was writing that book, trying to figure out a way to mentor, to minister to people when I couldn't cure them with surgery was when I when I lost my son Mitch in the middle of writing that book, and then I became one of these people who wasn't just studying other people's pain. I was actually living out my own. And when I discovered Romans four eighteen, I came up with what I called Warren's Gap Theory. That that's kind of a joke in science. People always name things after themselves. When people discover something, they put their own name on it, and it goes down in history as you know Newton's law of gravity or whatever. And so I just kind of jokingly called this Warren's Gap Theory in my new book. And what what Paul talked about in Romans 4.18 is where the gap happens. Paul said of Abraham, against all hope, remember he was an old man with an old wife. He had never had a child, and God's telling him he's going to father this great nation, right? There's no reason to hope for that. If you're, I'm sorry, my friend, listening out there in Lithuania or Egypt or, or Idabel, Oklahoma, or wherever you're hearing this today, if you're 90 years old, you are not getting ready to have a baby. You're just not. You need to move on. But stop buying clothes on Target.com and outfit in your nursery. It's not going to happen. You're not going to have a baby, right? So says Lee Warren. But if God comes into your house and meets with you and says, hey, listen here, uh, my friend, you're going to have a child, then Abraham had a decision to make. Like, do I trust God or do I trust what I see from biology and, and history and my own experience in life? So Abraham had a decision. And Paul says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Abraham believed in hope. He believed in the notion of hope. And in, and because he was able to have hope, he then believed God. So this is kind of a dualism. It's a, it's, a, it's a coin of two sides. He believed in hope and the idea that it's good to have hope. And he, in hope, believed in God. And what he did was he found a way to live in the gap between against and hope against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and that, my friend, I realized, is where faith lives. So faith lives in the gap between against and hope. Against all hope, Abraham in hope 
believed. That's a pretty good verse to put on a tattoo if you were so inclined. Romans 4.18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believe. I live in the gap between against and hope. That's where faith is, okay? It's a Warren's gap theory. Faith lives in the gap between against and hope. Now, Chris Davis is standing in the end zone, right? And he's got the ball coming towards him. And he's got all these Alabama players crashing down around him. He's got the field stretched out from left to right with 20, 21 other people. So there's 10 Auburn players, teammates of his out there. And there's 11 Alabama teammate or Alabama players coming towards him. And he's got either to sit down and do some quantum mechanics and write down some equations and figure out the path, or he's got to find a way to take hope. Right. And what he did was probably, and again, I don't know him, but objectively, this is what he must have done. He must have said, hey, I remember that lots of football games have been won on the last play. There have been many times in the past when a game that seemed to be over wasn't, in fact, over. In fact, this is why people love college basketball, and this is why people love basketball. I'm not one of those people, okay? I don't love basketball. Just don't get it. And my brother was a lot taller than me, and he was a college basketball player, and he's eight years older, seven years older than me. And when I was a little kid, I would, he would encourage me to play basketball, and he would 100% of the time, I would try to take a shot, and he would stuff it back in my face. And then I would not play with him for a long time. And then he would say, come on, play basketball with me, and I promise I won't do that. I was, I was like Lucy and Charlie Brown. Like Rob would say, hey, let's go play basketball. I promise I won't stuff it in your face this time. And just like Lucy, come on, kick the football. I won't pull it away this time. And I was Charlie Brown, and every time, boom, Rob stuffed the basketball in my face. It would knock my glasses off, and I wouldn't play basketball again. So that may be part of why I don't like basketball to, to this day, right? Nevertheless, the reason lots of people do like basketball is that the lead changes so many times in many games, it comes down to the literal horn at the end before you know who's going to win. The ball's in the air and it crosses through the hoop just in time and the score changes one more time and the game's over, right? So that's why people like basketball because the lead is it's never a done deal until it's a done deal. And oftentimes in football, it is. The team's ahead by 35 points, and it's late in the fourth quarter. That game is over, right? But sometimes the ball's in the air, and the the score is tied or close, and there's no time left on the clock, and the player is going to field the ball. Chris Davis sees the ball coming, and the game is not, in fact, over yet. Even though time is out on the clock, it was one second on the clock when the ball was snapped and that ball was kicked, okay? So Chris Davis has to has to make a decision. He's either going to do quantum physics or he's just going to give up or he's going to flex a muscle called hope. And he's going to remember that some games, many games have been won on the last play before. And then he has to engage the second component part of hope, which is movement. He's got to start running. Okay, because every millisecond that he stands there in that end zone, that empty space around him gets more and more compressed as those bodies and the gaps and the distances between him and those Alabama players get smaller. Right. So they're coming with speed, which speed creates angles. And if he picks the right angle and their speed and their momentum is coming towards him at just the right speed, then he has a chance to slip past some of them. Right. Some of those guys, by the way, are big, you know, giant, massive, 340-pound offensive lineman. They're not super nimble and quick, and a fast little guy like him has a chance to run past them, right? Some of those guys are fast, and hopefully they're going to get blocked. But he's got it in his mind now that maybe 
there's a chance. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to find out if there's a chance, I've got to start running, right? So Chris Davis, in order to have hope, has to remember that games have been won before on the last play, and he's got to move towards the possibility of that happening again. Abraham, against all hope, in hope believed. When God says, you're going to have a kid and he's 90 years old, and he says, no way, there's no possible way, he says, wait a minute, God has done impossible things before. He has. He's done impossible things before. He performed miracles before. He spoke and light was created before. He created heaven and earth before. He's given me, Abraham was probably saying, he's given me great wealth. He's protected me. as He's increased my standing. He's protected me from invaders and disease. And he's, he's given me blessings. He's given me a great wife. He's done hard and impossible things before. So Abraham reminds himself that maybe there is a reason to hope because I remember that God's done great things before. And then he has to move. And God says, go. Abraham's got to go. Even though there's no objective reason to think that where he's going is going to produce this blessing for him, he still has to go because God says go, right? So Chris Davis has to start running with the ball or the possibility of the thing he hopes for becomes less and less realistic as time passes, right? If you're on the beach in the battle, in the first scene of Saving Private Ryan, you finally get out of the water and onto the beach and the bullets are flying. You can hunker down behind the first object that you find that gives you a little bit of shelter. But if you stay there very long, they're going to dial in those mortars and they're going to blow you up eventually. The only way to survive, you can't go back to the ocean and you can't lay there and get shot at forever. The only way to survive is to summon the courage to press forward for, further inland and take that beach, right? That that first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan is a fascinating example of the idea of hope being memory and movement, right? You've got to, at some point, you've got to face the, the fear and get up and start running. Chris Davis knew he was about to get hit if he didn't start running, right? And the only chance they had to win that game was to get after it. Now, there's a thing, a a biblical concept called strongholds. And this is, I just want to give you one little thing to think about here because I I want to do a whole episode about this idea at some point in the future. I think it might be a Tuesdays with Tata. This would be a good conversation to have with him. But the word stronghold is often used in Christian circles among our more charismatic friends. They have a, a connotation to stronghold as being something demonic. There's a the idea that there are certain cities or places in the earth where demons have more influence or that there's individual demonic activity that happens in our lives where a particular demon can encourage you to have a lustful spirit. You'll hear people say things like, he's got a lustful spirit after him or he has a, a spirit of financial failure. And the idea is like a Frank Peretti novel where where there's a literal demon that tip, tempts you or affects you in a certain way with a particular sin pattern or a particular type of problem. And those things are – there's some biblical, reasonable ideas behind some of those concepts, okay? But I just want to tell you, the only place the word stronghold actually shows up in the whole Bible really doesn't have – anything to do with that stuff. It's 2 Corinthians 10.4 is the passage. And in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the idea is all about what's going on in our mind. Okay? 2 Corinthians 10.4 says this, 2 Corinthians 10.4 and 5. 
and this is a, a translation out of the Hebrew, I'm sorry, out of the Greek. It's pretty literal. It's one long sentence. It's actually usually translated into two sentences in most of the English translations. But here's what it says. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's the word strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to obey Christ. Okay? The word stronghold here in the Greek is a word, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so please, if you're a Greek scholar out there and I mispronounce this, please forgive me, but the word is okurama. It's spelled O-C-H-U-R-O with a little tittle thing over it. O-M-A. O-C-H-U-R-O-M-A. And it's pronounced something like okurama. It sounds like an H, like okurama. And okurama, literally, it only shows up in the New Testament one time. And it literally means a heavily fortified containment, like a fort, like a like a fortress, like a citadel. I've been to a citadel. Um, if you've ever seen a, a castle, if you've been to Europe, there's castles all over the place. Well, there's one in Biche, France, this town called B-I-C-H. I was stationed in um, I was stationed in Lanschville, Germany for a while in 2004 before I went to Iraq. And in Biche, France, it's B-I-T-C-H, actually, B-I-T-C-H-E. It sounds like a bad word, but it's not. I'm not saying a France. I'm saying it's B-I-T-C-H-E, and it's pronounced Biche. And there's a citadel in Biche that's up up on top of a tall hill, okay? And it was built in some, it was, the construction started in 1680. It was built like, it took a hundred years almost for it to be built. But this citadel is built up on this long kind of arrow-shaped hill. And I'll put a picture in the show notes, but it's just this perfect, heavily defensible, old school citadel. It's a, it's a castle, right? It's a fortress. And it would, it was impossible for it to be defeated because they had a perfect look at the territory around them. And I went there one night with Roddy Necci, who was a, a spine surgeon that I was working with in Germany for that month. And he took me to dinner at this restaurant at the foot of the hill. And you could see the Citadel up there. And it actually only ever failed in battle when they surrendered to the Germans in World War One. It was never defeated. All those hundreds of years by conquering armies failed to attack and, oh, and conquer that Citadel because it was perfectly defensible up on top of that hill. And that's the idea that Hokurama is getting at. It's this 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 encampment, this fortress that's so heavily walled and and perfectly situated that it can defeat any type of attack, but it has a connotation in the other ways that it's used in ancient literature has a connotation. And what Paul's getting at here is that you can build a stronghold around a false idea in your brain that the, the enemy, or whether it's just your neurochemistry or however you want to look at it, you can let the negative voice in your head create a, a fence at the wall of fortress, a citadel, an okurama, a stronghold around a false idea in your brain. You can build up this notion, and Chris Davis could have done it in the end zone, Abraham could have done it, where you say, nope, no chance I'm getting through there. I am not going to be able to score this touchdown. And if you do that, you're going to, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're going to truly not be able to accomplish the thing because the fortress, the okurama, the stronghold in your brain convinced you not even to try. They convinced Chris Davis to just maybe give a half-hearted effort and get tackled, right? Because if there had been a stronghold in his mind that said, I can't possibly win this, I can't possibly return this kick, I can't possibly score this touchdown, then Lisa and I would have been shattered as we stood there to watch the Iron Bowl. But more importantly, Auburn would have lost that game 
Gus Malzahn wouldn't have got the big contract extension and it would have cost him 10 or $12 million. And Chris Davis wouldn't have that thing that made him famous. That he was the kick six guy and he still makes a living doing promotional appearances around that one play out of his life when he returned that kick. And just to finish the story, if you didn't watch the video, he returned that kick 109 yards to score the touchdown and Auburn won the game and went on to the SEC championship and went on from there to the national championship where they narrowly lost to a Florida State team coached by Jimbo Fisher, who's now at Texas A&M. Long story. Okay. So the reason that Chris Davis scored that touchdown is because he did not have a stronghold in his mind that told him to give up before he even got started. Okay. And so the whole long-winded point that I'm trying to make here today for you, my friend, is that hope involves two things, memory and movement. And then in order to win, you've got to break down any barrier or stronghold in your mind that convinces you not to even try in the first place. The biggest failure you will have in your life is when you listen to the negative voice that tells you that your circumstances are inevitable, that your past will predict your future, that you cannot possibly win this situation, you cannot possibly stop drinking, you cannot possibly get your financial house in order, you cannot possibly survive this cancer, so why even go through the chemo? If you if you let that stronghold exist in your brain, then you're going to fail. But if you do what Paul says, take captive every thought. If you say no, hang on a second. People have scored on the last play before. Empty space is mostly in front of me. I'm pretty fast. That's why the coach put me back here. I've got some gifts and some tools, and I've got the the, the Lord inside me, who Second Peter says has given me everything I need for life and godliness. And I've got the full armor of God to defeat these arguments that are popping up in my mind. And if it's a, if it's the literal devil of hell that's tempting me, then I can claim the blood of Jesus over him, and I can do what Paul said, which is resist the devil, and he will flee from me, and I can get after it, and I can start running. And I have a chance if I just engage the muscles of memory and movement because my friend, hope is a verb and there's no stronghold that can overcome hope if you claim it in the name of Jesus Christ and take captive every thought. You turn your brain as a weapon that's, that can be formed against any type of argument or stronghold, as Paul said, and you can get after it and you can change your mind and you can change your life, but you can't let those strongholds hold you up and you can't let what seems impossible keep you from starting the run because once you have the ball in your hands there is a chance until the whistle blows and it's game over you've got a chance to run that kick back right i'm gonna play a tommy walker song at the end of this episode from his new album soulful scripture songs and uh, it's just one of my favorites um that's a great album by the way it started streaming yesterday uh, as I, I played you a song from it yesterday you can get it anywhere music is available and the soulful scripture songs tommy just wrote a scripture uh, wrote a song out of one scripture and kind of played them in an r&b style and there's a beautiful one that's about the word and it's called the word will stand Okay, and I just want to remind you today that God's word will stand. It will, it will demolish any argument. It will allow you to take captive every thought. It will allow you to break down that okurama, that stronghold, that lofty notion that raises itself up against the idea that God came here so that you could have abundance and not just be stuck in the steal, kill, and destroy of the enemy's attacks. Your neurochemistry will work for you if you let it. And once you decide to take hope, then all of a sudden that gap theory comes into play. And you'll find faith lurking down there in that gap between against and hope. And you can catch that ball, and you can start running. And there's a possibility that you can score because it ain't over until it's over. And you can change your mind, and you can change your life. And the good news is, my friend, 
and self-brain surgery Saturday, and you can start today. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In heaven and earth will pass away. All that we see will be gone. But the words of the Lord will forever stand. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. 
Bluepill.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery. Dr. Lee Warren. Substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarnmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them. tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.